I'm Charlie Rossiter, and this is Poetry Spoken Here. Our feature today is Kirk Judd. He's a founding member and former president of the West Virginia Writers, and a founding member and creative writing instructor for Allegheny Echoes, which is an organization dedicated to support and preservation of West Virginia cultural heritage arts. And he's known for performing his work with music, which he's done around the U.S. and actually around the world. About his own work, he says, My poetry deals with the Appalachian cultural experience and the individual emotional and spiritual involvement of living day to day in this unique environment. And that's one of the big reasons I'm so glad you're here, Kirk, because I, I think you have a lot to tell us about where you live that we don't know. Well, that's true, Charlie. I, I think a lot of people don't know um, about Appalachia in general and specifically West Virginia. West Virginia is the only state wholly within the Appalachian region that stretches from New York to Georgia. And people just have still after, after all these years, just that stereotyped image of the Appalachian hillbilly, coal miner, uh, redneck, truck driving, a bandana wearing, boot scooting redneck, and and that's not uh, the way it is uh, at all. Once you get inside the culture and see the uh, commitment and and passion to the arts and beauty and and uh, music and storytelling and, and ballad singing and and uh, and poetry, spoken word that exists, and and just about everybody lives here. What should we know beyond? What are probably our stereotypes, <laughs> and I think you hit most of them, if not all, <laughs> if not all of them. There, uh, yeah. What what else should we know about about? Well, I, th I think that the the Appalachian culture has been a unique culture within the American uh, milieu for for uh, many years, and uh, I, I think one of the things that gets turned around is this. Uh, there's a perception that, that uh, Appalachians are, are not friendly, uh, they're not accepting of outsiders, and they can stick to themselves. But what that is, I think, is, is more a, a dedication or a devotion to family. And, and, and family is a bigger definition in Appalachia. Hmm. There's, there's all these extended families that people are now recognizing outside of the Appalachians. Latin culture that have always been in existence inside the culture. And um, that the whole it takes a village thing is, has always been uh, applicable here. And and so people take that to to mean we're clannish when we're not really. We're just we're just simply close and friendly people. And uh, one of the other things I think is not appreciated is the great natural beauty that's in uh, Appalachia, especially in West Virginia. I've been all over the world and, and there's some spectacular places, but there's nothing as, as beautiful as these West Virginia hills. Oh, that, that's a good point. I don't think that's the first thing people think about when they think about uh, Appalachia. No, and, and, and it's probably because it's the way it's depicted. I mean, the only time there's this story about Appalachia is that there's been another hillside or another mountaintop removed or another flood washed out of the uh, 
hillsides or, or some disaster that's uh, either man-made or, or natural that comes out of here. But it, it, when people come to West Virginia, they just they just stand and stare at the beauty <laughs> of these mountains. It's green. We uh, we've been to Ireland a few times on cultural exchanges, and our friends from Ireland come over to West Virginia and say, "Well, that's oh, the greenest place we've ever seen." <laughs> and we go to Ireland. We said, "No, this is the greenest place we've ever okay. seen." But they're they're. Uh, they it, it, people are surprised at, at the at the amount of, of uh, territory and trees and mountains and rivers and uh, it, it's just uh, it, it's a it's a natural paradise. I think there there are more trees in West Virginia and anywhere on the East Coast except maybe Maine. I think Maine have might have more forested land. You're but, talking uh, to you're talking to a guy in Vermont here. Be careful. Ah. Uh, well. <laughs> We've got no. a lot of pretty trees here too, Charlie. Yeah. No, the point the point the point is, and folks who a lot of people aren't too sure about their geography. We're talking about a state in the eastern part of the US, a little bit southwest of Washington, DC. So you know it's over here on the East Coast, which is the great megalopolis that runs up and down the whole part of the northeast United States. And yet there's amazing wilderness in West Virginia. And I think that's part of why people may not realize it either. So close to those many big cities and you got that wilderness is just fabulous. If, if you look at a map of, uh, or a picture of mm. the East coast of the United States at night, that little dark spot, that's West Virginia. <laughs> that's a good <laughs> way to say it. Yeah. There's, yeah. there's not any electric lights and there's still a lot of places in this state where there's no cell service. There's no cell phones. There's, there's no internet service. It's, back to the way it used to be that's that's an interesting that's an interesting thought for people yeah we have a part of town that has no cell service <laughs> and it's surprising but when we moved here and found that out so why don't we hear a poem or so you know you have the, that uh, poem that starts off with the title of your book my people was music i think oh. it says a lot about what we're talking about i think well it it, it certainly does this is this is my greatest hit actually right. um, this, this poem has a has a weird history it's been all around the world it, it's been used in canada and and brazil and and uh, been translated into portuguese and it's it's a it has a long history and and people always called the poem my people was music which is not the title so uh -huh. when I decided to put this last collection together, I thought, well, I'll just use that line as the title of the book. Maybe people will remember it. The title of the, the poem itself is The High Country Remembers Her Heritage. My people was music. Their lives were poems told in the old language of earth and season, rain and sun, field and sweat, stream and blood. My people was music. They come to this country and fiddle cases throwed on the tide. They burst on the shore and notes was their babies and they spread over the land, moving up the valleys and the hollows with the piping of the wind, moving up the rivers and the runs with the rhythm of the spawn, the pulse of blood on membrane beating, coming home to live, coming home to die. Coming home to live, 
coming home. My people was music. They throwed down roots and growed up families and stayed. Stand with your heart in the earth and your hand in the sky and hear them in the hum of the planets, in the songs of the stars that carry the cadence of time. Hear your granddaddy in the high fiddle string, your rogue uncle in the banjo ring, your button shoe aunt in the corner guitar, keeping time, keeping time, keeping time. Hear them in there, because that's where they is. My people was music. They didn't have no politics nor economics. They didn't write no newspapers nor history books. That's not how their legacy is kept. Their lives are the poems of my soul and the songs of my breath. My people was music. And if you want to know, you've got to be able to hear. I can see that going over big in audiences with audiences. It's uh, it's pretty well received. Uh, I do that uh, with uh, musicians. And most mm -hmm. of the time, the, the, there's an old time fiddle tune that's uh, titled Grumbling Old Man and Growling Old Woman, which is a great <laughs> title for it, too. But the rhythm of that uh, tune fits that poem extremely well. And uh, mm -hmm. when we do that, it, it usually does get a good audience reaction. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. I, I, another thing you say um, that I find real interesting is talking about a uh, spiritual quality of life there. And uh, I picked that right up in your poems, like the poem about, uh, I'll say, owl communication, which is not what it's called. But Yeah, well, that's, uh, uh, I, I uh, agree. It, to me, it, there's, there's more, uh, like we were talking earlier, I just got back from this extended trip in Europe where we visited a lot of the great cathedrals of Europe that are just so over the top and obscenely wealthy and, and some of them are still building and <laughs> it's oh, just wow. nuts. Yeah. When, uh, to me, you go out and, and get on a trout stream or go up on the top of a mountain and that's where the cathedral is. That That's where you're mm -hmm. closer to whatever this, this force is that's out there. And, and it makes no sense not to, uh, not to take, have some appreciation for that. And this poem that you're talking about um, is a true story. All my poems are true stories. But I was in uh, in the mountains in Pocahontas County, West Virginia, last October. And this this actually happened. Uh, um, and it happened to be on a place called Bishop's Knob. And so I, uh, I titled it Communion, Barred Owls Under Bishop's Knob. The tree knows the owls, understands their form and shape in its limbs, recognizes an absence of absence when they're there, but doesn't expect them now in this slant of ochre light slipping through the thinning canopy on the west side of the mountain an hour before dusk. Nevertheless, they've come, moved by my movement on this abandoned hall road. They settle side by side in the familiar ash an old couple on a park bench. They turn to each other, press their foreheads together in some ritual of expression, some eloquence of owlness, a language I almost remember. 
One turns towards me, the other away. I simply stand in the road, aware I'm in this conversation, but unaware of how to speak, how to join in. I raise a hand slowly. One continues to stare, the other turns to look. I lower it just as slowly and reluctantly move on so as not to worry them. Farther up the trail, I suddenly know they were not worried, nor was the tree, nor the light, nor the mountain. They all merely spoke to me in an owl moment. I heeded that small ceremony, witnessed, somehow heard, as I hear now, a slender, whispered gratitude that I passed by and did not ask for more. Folks, you can see why I like Kirk's poetry. <laughs> well, it's not only local, but it's cosmic. Yeah, thanks for saying that, Charlie. I, I'm, I'm <laughs> glad because I, 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 I hope it is. I want it to be. Oh, it sure is. In fact, I was I had a looking at other poems in the book. The book we're referring to is "My People Was Music." Is uh, there are a couple of poems that made me say. You do a poetry of wonder. And I say that, I can specifically tell you, because of seeing God on the interstate. <laughs> everybody doesn't do that. And uh, well, uh, not everybody looks. <laughs> and the other poem about uh, getting a little better understanding of Georgia O'Keeffe. And, and those two poems together gave me that. Uh, I especially felt it with those. Well, yeah, I, I got a chance to. to go out to uh, to Santa Fe. And the best thing about flying into Santa Fe is you can't fly into Santa Fe. You have to fly somewhere else and drive to Santa Fe. And so I flew into Albuquerque and drove up to Santa Fe. And it was the yeah. first time I'd been in the desert. And it was at the right time of day. And I was going through that desert. And all these things were in bloom that I'd never seen before. And the light was orange. The light was spectacular. Like like September light here in, in, mm. in this part of the country where it comes at the right slant in the evenings. And it's just, it's almost buttery yellow here out there. It was orange and it was just so amazing. It was just like, uh, and, and wonder is the, is the right word because I had this sense of wonder and, and I, I, I'm glad I do. I still have that sense of wonder. I, I see and hear and experience something every time I go for a walk in the woods, every time I, I go up and I still do. And I, and, and, and so I still write about those things, and 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 that comes from from the experience. That's that's not just what the poetry is; it's from the experience of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and particularly out there, compared to a forested environment that you live in, and it's so open out there in New Mexico. I mean, unless you're up in the mountains, but you know what I mean, like down around Santa Fe, even and even more so down in Albuquerque. It is just, you know, you can see forever, almost yeah. no matter where you are, you can see forever, it seems. It's just it, it is amazing. Astonishing. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh well, and this other poem that you uh, mentioned, the uh going down there to the Mississippi River and seeing oh, yeah. an outrageously large collection of cranes. <laughs> yeah. Oh. Yeah, well that was uh that, that's uh that's another one. Very much different for me, uh, but it uh, it seems to work pretty well. And we worked this at the uh, Bridgewater 
uh, poetry, International Poetry Festival last year, and, uh, and it seemed to work pretty well. It's titled Almost Hidden. We walked hand in hand at first, later single file, first me leading, then you, on the single track farther and farther from the road, deeper into the sparse wood toward the full bend in the Mississippi, a wide, big-bodied river here in the belly of the nation, splitting the country north and south, a road map for the splendid migrations, hundreds of thousands moving ahead of the season, toward or away from, toward or away from, feeding, breeding, birth, death. It is too far to walk, they told us in town, on a day when a storm is coming. But you could not come here without seeing, and I could not not come with you. So, after hours getting colder and weary, with clothes and boots wet from flakes on the outside and sweat on the inside, we broke out of the wood, crossed the sand hills down the river's bank. With steam rising from our faces and from the wetlands flanking both sides of the path, we stopped at the top of a rise and looked down. I saw your eyes and knew why we had come here now, to see the cranes standing, thousands still and patient, breathing, quiet, almost hidden in the morning snow. I get that visual. It's pretty amazing. <laughs> when you uh, when you teach poetry, do you have any particular thing that you tell people? That's like your thing as a teacher that maybe they wouldn't get if someone else was trying to teach them about poetry. Well, uh, I'm a spoken word guy, and I always have been. I, I've thought of poetry that way since I first started writing it in high school, and and uh, and, and that's something that I don't think everyone talks about in, in a creative writing class or in a poetry class. Everybody thinks of the poem as being on the page, and I never think of the poem being on the page. I think of the poem is what the audience experiences from the poet. It's the breath of the poet. It's, it's the uh, color of the light in, in the room. It, it's, it's everything that happens around the poem. And, and so I approach every, every poem from the sound of it and try to explain to folks that, that when you write poetry, you must, you must say it out loud. You must write it as you speak. The, the language, and this, this gets back to another Appalachian cultural thing, I think. We have a natural rhythm in our language that not everybody has. And so we tend to speak in lines as if we were telling a story or if we were saying a poem. And, and so I tell folks, that's your line break. Where, where your breath stops, where you run out of breath, that's where your line break. It's not where the page says it is. It's where your voice says it is. Mm. And I also say, tell folks uh, that, that you have to create that. You have to go there in the poem, and you have to take your reader there in the poem. So you have to be as dead serious and is it full of wonder and awe or amazement or sorrow or joy or whatever emotion you were experiencing. You have to do that when you read the poem to an audience in the same intensity that you experienced it the first time. And that's what a lot of people don't get. People sometimes think, oh, you're just writing about an experience. No, you're not. You're bringing that experience to, to readers and to, into an audience. 
And that's a lot tougher to do. Yeah. Well, that's a good insight. And I think it's real because a lot of people who might take a poetry workshop, they might not come in with the idea uh, that an important thing is going to be that they're going to stand up and speak this to people. They're going to, they really are going to perform it. And that scares a lot of people. It, like it having, does. having enough trouble just to write it down and say, guess what? That's nice, but that's not enough. You've got to right. get up and put and, it across. And, and, and I do teach, there are some workshops that I teach that are nothing but how do you get up and present? How do, how do you, how do you talk to an audience? How, how do you, how do you actually do this? Poetry is pretty intense and pretty personal. And some, most folks, I don't know, a lot of folks are scared of it. Yeah, well, it takes it takes a lot. And a lot of people, it doesn't come uh, naturally. So I guess that's part of the Yeah, I, I agree. It's still that old, you know, fear of public speaking. Thing. Yeah, but I, I agree with you. To do it right, that's that's what you ought to be doing. Yeah, and, and I tell everybody, I say, yeah, there's nobody out there in the audience that wants to see you fail. Everybody out there is on your side. They yes, want sir. to hear what you have to say. They want they want you to, to succeed, and they'll help you succeed, and they'll be right there with you. History. One of your poems mentions bombs in Logan County in oh, 1921. Yeah. Well, I got to tell you, I didn't know about that one. What's that about? Well, Charlie, you're you're <laughs> among the several million Americans who don't know that at once mm -hmm. upon a time Americans bombed Americans Whoa. during during the mine wars in the 1920s. Bombs. Uh, just after World War One, uh, uh, there was a large strike. The the there was a lot of organization going on against the exploitation of all of this hodgepodge of, of folks that got thrown together to come and dig the coal out when they needed the smokeless coal to run the steamships back and forth to run the war machine. And, mm -hmm. and uh, after the war, the, the, the coal barons and coal bosses still had all of this uh, going. They were making scads of money, but they weren't paying the miners much. And, and so organizers, the UMWA started, and, and they started in here. And there, there was a large strike in, in 1920 and 21. And the, the, it had gotten to the point where the Baldwin Phelps Agency out of New York City, which is a detective agency like the Pinkertons, hmm. hired these kids coming off the boat, coming back from Europe, stuck guns in their hands and put them on trains and sent them down here to Appalachia to uh, keep coal miners in line. And uh, that got a little out of hand over a few years, and the miners organized, and they armed themselves. And a large contingent of miners were marching. I mean, there were several pretty large-scale skirmishes, uh, the largest of which was at Blair Mountain in West Virginia, in southern West Virginia, which is still uh, it's being mined and being considered as a national historic site at the same time right now. But uh, during those encampments, the, the coal bosses hired some airplanes from the United States Army Air Corps and the munitions for them and their pilots and bombed the damn coal camps. We bombed ourselves. It's the only time in history it's happened. And, and so that's, yeah, a lot of people don't know that.
Mm -mm. Another unusual, another fact I have no awareness of is how does a river freeze from the bottom up? Well, now I can't explain that one, but I've been in them. It it can happen. Oh yeah, it can happen. And and the only, I mean, I've thought about this for a long time and I've talked to some people who, who have a theory that West Virginia and, and these old mountains, these old Appalachian mountains are undercut. I mean, it's all limestone. That's why the water's so good. That's why the, the, the trees grow so well. The grass grows so well. It's beautiful. It's a real beautiful country. But it's all cut, undercut by limestone. We have rivers that flow underground. Uh-huh. So, they, I mean, there are some rivers that, that go away every summer, but they go underground. We have, we have creeks that, that get lost underground and no one knows where they come out, but they come out in the river down there. And, and so a lot of the high country is undercut by these, this cave system, you know, this, this uh, permeable limestone rock system. And so some of the theories is that the, the air gets so cold in underneath these rivers. And when I'm talking about rivers, I'm talking about trout streams. Uh-huh. I'm talking about rivers that, that maybe are one or two foot deep in mo- at most in the places. Yeah. And, and so they, they can in places, there are places and it's documented in several places in West Virginia where they freeze from the bottom up. All right. Okay. <laughs> I've walked on. Them. I had to ask. Well, let's, let's finish up with the poetry of trees. Then. That's appropriate for a, Okay. Oh, I'll be so, happy to. And, and there you go. It'll just about wrap us up. Okay. Well, I don't know if you have uh, redbud trees in Vermont, but they're awful pretty down here. And in the springtime, there the whole there are whole mountains that are purple with redbud here. And so mm-hmm. this is the this is my poem to the redbud trees. It's called the poetry of trees. This is the way they write with blossoms and bloom and the beginnings of green. When you see them, you know you're hearing poetry, hearing words you no longer understand, hearing the sound of color. When you send your children to the top of the hill to look, when you send your grandchildren and their children and grandchildren to the top of the hill behind the barn, look down across the meadow in the small pond, when you send them to the top of the hill in April, to look down at the edge of the wood there past the small pond in the meadow to see the poetry of the red bud in bloom, the clouds of purple whispering in that old language, this elegy to this spring, whispering those purple clouds in that old language, the poetry those children will hear, will recognize, will never forget. When you send them, tell them this. Tell them I said to them, say to them now, I planted these for you. Beautiful. And we're going to end on that note. Um, Charlie Rossiter, we've been visiting with Kirk Judd right here on Poetry Spoken Here. And for our short feature this time around, we're going to have a little poetry from Kirk along with some musical accompaniment. Be with us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Joe, Baber Mountain, 1990. Drunken pirates of the highway, we fell laughing from the van, 
locked arms and danced in an opium dream until the red sun rose. In the scream of the sky, we looked in each other's eyes and understood. Years later, we sat under the Bodhi tree in the rain on a street corner in downtown Lexington. Me in your hat, you in my coat, backed against the night-soaked bricks until the wine was gone. You wouldn't let me leave, and I wouldn't let you stay. Finally, I picked you up to carry you away before the police arrived. You said you wanted to fight me because I lived in all worlds. I said I wanted to take you home because you lived in none. We were friends in there where we were. I felt every pinprick syllable you wrote, every sharpened phrase thrust into the wood of life as if you were holding off the same demons who dressed your edge. You couldn't climb out of there, if not by Joan, then certainly not by me, or by any of the love thrown around you like gauze on a flame, never touching the clear light of your fire. All I have of you is all there will ever be now. It's not enough. On the mountain, I laid my cheek on the cool grass, closed my eyes, and in each unmeasured pause, listened for your voice one last time. You've been listening to Poetry Spoken Here. I'm Charlie Rossiter, inviting you to join us again next time to let poetry speak to you. Music for today's program was written and performed by Jack Rossiter Mundley. And remember, Poetry Spoken Here is more than a podcast. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash poetryspokenhere. Follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash poetryspokenhere. For more about today's show and other Poetry Spoken Here podcasts, as well as our blog, just visit our website, poetryspokenhere.com. If you'd like to submit suggestions of poets or topics for future podcasts, you can send to our email address, poetryspokenhere at gmail.com.